Kia ora and welcome to Cinema in Context, where we discuss all things film and the connections between. My name is Jeremy Downing. I'm William Chen. And I'm Sarah Watt. And each month at Cinema in Context, we discuss two films, one current and one retrospective with some connection. It could be the same director, the same actor, or a similar theme. However, as we are at the end of the year in December, it has been a Cinema in Context tradition that we do a bit of a wrap-up of the year. This wrap-up has taken slightly different forms each year, but it's fair to say we pick our best picks, talk about them for a bit, um, and as we often record this earlier in the end of year season, we sometimes have to make some predictions as well about mm-hmm. what's coming up over the Christmas period. Uh, so sit back, relax. We try to be relatively spoiler free in these the, these episodes. Yes. Um, but hey, let's let's jump into it and yeah. see where we go. Just the celebration of stuff that we've really liked this year. Yeah. I think these are always my favorite episodes to record. I think these are some of our highest listened listened to episodes because mm-hmm. it doesn't require you to have seen the two films that we're talking about, mm-hmm. which is great. Now, team, we're not going to do uh, this episode as a Patreon episode, so we're going to give you the whole whole shebang. But I encourage you to go back and listen to some of our Patreon content of the last twelve months. There's some good stuff in there. Um, and today, just to give you a bit of a bit of a structure about how this is going to go, we're going to start by talking about our film of the year. We're going to talk about our biggest surprise of the year, our biggest disappointment of the year. Not necessarily the worst film, just the film that we may have, might have had different expectations for and they didn't live up to them. Our wild card, mm-hmm. either film or television of the year, and then we're going to finish off with our favorite TV show, which. Has been a new introduction to these these conversations because the world of TV is such a great... rich and nourishing <laughs> plate. It is. Mm. It is, and it really yum, is. Yum, yum. Not much difference these days between yeah. film and television. television. Maybe even better. Oh, yeah. cool. Well, let's start off with our film of the year, and I can see Sarah. You are sitting ready. You've got your book resting against your coffee because cup because I don't want anyone to see my answers. <laughs> oh. You see, I, if I had another book, I'd be putting it around the edges so you couldn't see. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I wish that I could be controversial and come up with a best film of the year that somebody somewhere hadn't already said was the best of something. But ladies and gentlemen, as a bit of uh, background for you, as a professional reviewer, I was horrified to go back over this year and see that I've given two films five stars this year. What are these films? Normally, I've gone ham on the five stars, and this is not one of those years. I will be coming to the other one uh, in due course. So let's just bust straight into it. My best film of the year is the Palme d'Or winning film by Justine Triette. And it's Anatomy of a Fall. Mm. Now, you have seen it, uh, Mm -hmm. William, but you have not seen it, Jeremy. That is correct. Okay. So basically, Anatomy of a Fall is... uh, And these are not spoilers. This is the the plot. Um, Anatomy of a Fall is um, a French drama. It has a German protagonist um, uh, heroine in Sandra Huller, who you may or may not have seen in the dreadful, excruciating film Tony Erdman many years ago. But anyway, son, uh, Sandra Huller uh, is the wife of a husband, as often happens with wives and husbands. Um, she And her husband um, dies under circumstances that, that can't be determined properly and that, or accurately, and therefore legal proceedings ensue. Now, full disclosure, I... Long before film came into my life in a big way, I trained as a defense lawyer and I qualified as a lawyer and I am thrilled by the criminal legal um, arena. 
The French do it differently to us in the, the, the Commonwealth and Britain uh, countries. And it was fascinating for me to watch Anatomy of a Fall because it goes through all of the, the court and legal procedures as well as being a gripping and beautifully acted drama. Um, it's completely enthralling. And everything about it is amazing. And, um, and it's written and directed by a French, or at least directed by a French woman, uh, Justine Trier. And um, Anatomy of a Fall won the Palm d'Or, and I can see why. And I can't go higher than that, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. So that, for me, was my best film of the year. Awesome. Mm. Is that, does that mean it will be at the Oscars next year, or it's already had its chance at the Oscars? Um, it will come into the Oscars next year, because it won the Palm d'Or in May. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, it will probably be up for Best uh, International uh, Foreign Language Film, or whatever we call it now. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think my feelings on the movie are just... It, it, really for something so on paper simple right yeah. it, it's it's a courtroom drama yeah. most of it takes place in one one location <clears throat> the storytelling and especially the thematic resonance is just extraordinary yeah. like there's so much that this movie says without explicitly saying it yeah and i, I love that fuzziness around the edges and I, I think thematically that's one of the points right and the fuzziness yeah. is one of the points as well because yeah. This is not about gangsters, criminals, or baddies. This is real people struggling to give an accurate witness statement, struggling to remember exactly how something went, struggling to remember whether they actually heard this or they maybe didn't hear that. And that is all real. And therefore, rather than it being a polarizing stories of obvious baddies and obvious goodies, it's, it's very, very human mm. and fascinating in that regard. Mm. So yeah. Nice. Awesome. William, what's your film of the year? All right. Well, as with the last couple of years, um, I, I've just added a whole bunch of stuff to my runner's uplift. Can, can, we, can we just appreciate that this okay. is written on the back of a camp schedule from your from your activities, activities week? week? Yeah, nice. yeah. I was, um, <laughs> I mean, you stand around for hours and I, I had to do something with my time. <laughs> I just think about movies. <laughs> right, runner's okay. up, go. Okay, um, so just a word of warning, uh, dear co-hosts and listeners. Uh, I saw a lot of cartoons this year. Oh, <laughs> like a lot of what anime a things. I, I know, right? I know. <laughs> Me and cartoons. What? Really, really beautiful, cell shaded cartoons. Okay. So we are talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, which is something I've been celebrating and trying to get you guys to watch for a long time. It's, it's awesome. Um, I know, I don't think any of us are really into the turtles. I know I, I've never been a big turtles fan. But something about this movie, it's written by uh, Seth Rogen and mm. Eric Goldberg. It just taps into the, I guess, the, 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 the young people-ness of the whole thing, mm. right? It's, this is a franchise with teenage in its name, and yet hardly have the Turtles ever felt like teenagers because they're usually voiced by 30 and 40s men, yeah. right? Um, whereas this, they, they got a kid cast, everything feels vibrant, the dialogue is very, very current. Like, there's references to stuff like TikTok, to K-pop, to anime. It's like, this is just stuff kids like. And it's written and directed by grown-up men yes. who behave like teenagers. Exactly. <laughs> Which is the, <laughs> who are teenage for well, life. What's wonderful is uh, that's part of the advertising. It's yeah. like, from eternal teenager Seth, Seth Rogen. Rogen. exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's beautiful. I know a lot of people compare it to Spider-Verse, but it, it does something different. It's very chunky. It feels like early Nickelodeon stuff. And it's very heartfelt. Just a lovely, lovely movie. 
Um, and then speaking of Spider-Verse, uh, second run-up is Across the Spider-Verse. Um, what a tour de force. Yeah, that was neat. I it was really good. The first Spider-Verse kind of set the bar so high as mm. to what American animation could actually be. Mm. And this movie takes that bar and just like blows it out of the water to mix mm. metaphors. The third in this trio is the Netflix original Nimona. Mm-hmm. Um, which has a long, sordid, and quite sad production history. This was the final film of Blue Sky Studios before Disney purchased their parent company, Fox, and Disney just shut the entire production down because it was A, too expensive, and B, uh, really leans heavily into queer themes, and mm. Disney are like, nope, not mm. on our watch. Um, and other studi- uh, Annapurna actually picked it up, mm. uh, had other studios finish it, and it's a wonderful movie. Mm. Um, it's a little cheaper than the other two movies on my list, but um, but highly, highly recommended. Based on a webcomic about a shape a shapeshifter in kind of like a techno medieval kingdom. But sorry, ladies and gents, we finally come to my film of the year. Uh, and this is something that I cheated a little bit because officially it came out in twenty twenty two. However. It came out here, what, in Christmas? I saw it in January. And it is a movie that I just keep going back to again and again and again. Um, it is a film set in the Shrekiverse. It is Possum Boots' The Last Wish. Oh, wow. yeah. Directed mm. by Joel Crawford. Who is your favorite <laughs> hero or something? Yeah. It, I, I know, Sarah, you, you enjoyed it, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, Very much. I, I think it's a in my opinion, a masterpiece. Mm. Um, there's so much that this movie does right. And again, this is the franchise that gave us friggin' Shrek, th- oh, Shrek the Third, you know. Yeah. Um, Shrek has single-handedly destroyed American animation for two decades. And you come out with this movie, which is a spin-off of a spin-off, or a sequel of a spin-off, yeah. and it's creatively, artistically, and narratively one of the most exciting things to happen it's in Western animation. And it's great as well for kids, because I took the little six-and-a-half-year-old oh, nephew. Nice. It's great for kids. And I took his mother, who's very hard to please, uh-huh. my sister, and we all thoroughly enjoyed it. Nice. So it is actually legit one of those animated movies that is great for, for adults as well. And it's not because they're making rude, you know, no tap sex jokes that only adults will get it's just funny and relevant and clever and cool and yeah. rad you and made me want to see it again uh, i'm writing it on my list yeah and just uh, all of that plus it's really heartfelt like yeah. it's, it's a simple message about you know puss loses eight of his lives and needs to uh, appreciate what it's he has maths, in this life basically yeah. <laughs> Well, I had to think long and hard about this. I don't feel like this year has been a great year of films for me. Yeah. There might have been great films I've missed, but my gosh, it, it's been a sparse year. I agree with you, Sarah, when you kind of look back at your ratings. Um, I mean, the, the most fun, enjoyable, and satisfying experience I had at the cinema was watching Trial, Triangle of Sadness with yes, you. Yes, yes. And that technically came out in 2022. I do think Barbie is the film of the year. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the biggest... Undoubtedly. Most, it's just been so influential, but mm. I wouldn't necessarily put that, um, you know, as my film. Mm. The movie that I am going to choose, though, is something that we have done in our podcast this year, mm. and I had a great time watching it. I 
was on the plane ride back from Brisbane a few weeks ago and my sister was watching it and I just was laughing next to her with her and I knew that she was going to love it. And she's like, that's one of the best things I've seen in a long time. Mm. And it was Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> a laugh a minute. Yeah. Um, Theatre Lovely. Yeah. It's just got so many layers to it that connect with me. I mentioned on our podcast that as a teacher, as someone who went to Christian camps and as a theatre kid, there's so many things to get out of it. Yeah. Um, the jokes hold up. Even rewatching it with my sister in little spurts and starts or whatever, because I kind of put the headphone yep. in my ear and looked at her screen on the airplane. Um, there's funny moments, like just that moment where, and I mentioned to you the other night, William, where the choreographer is watching the final performance and goes, "They didn't get all the moves, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay." You know, sort of placating yeah. himself. It's a wonderful watch. Not mm. the most perfect, groundbreaking movie, mm. but in a year of kind of averageness yeah mm -hmm. theater camp is gonna be my pick great awesome. great pick all right well shall i roll into my biggest surprise of yes. 2023 yeah. yes so i i think my biggest and most um thrilling moment in the cinema was the opening of scream six mm. i think that was just great oh. i don't want to say too much just to spoil it william is yet to see it and yeah. listeners Looking won't have heard it the rest of the film is fine um but I actually think my biggest surprise this year is a movie that we focused on last month, which is Napoleon. Hey. I, Sarah's face is Wait, like... Wait, <laughs> biggest surprise as in better than you thought it would be? Yeah. Okay, good. I really right. enjoyed it. I yeah. mean, William and I went together. It was, a, it was a school night near the end of the term. I was exhausted. Mm. I, you know, we went and saw it, what, at like 6.45 <clears throat> yeah. at night and we were still getting out of the cinema at 10 p.m. Yeah. I was actually falling asleep during the Waterloo sequence because yeah. I was so tired. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that was not because of the movie. Like, that movie kept me as engaged as it could. Mm. I was so taken by the lead actors' performances, both Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby. I just really enjoyed Rid later Ridley Scott movies. I mean, I mentioned in an episode last month, the Last Jewel, um, House of Gucci. Mm. Mm -hmm. None of these are like perfect. They're not. They're not your aliens or your Blade Runners or your gladiators. Right. Sure. But they are just really well-made movies. And William, you, you said as well last last time, like we don't make movies like this anymore. Yeah. So I think Napoleon is yeah my oh, wow. my biggest big surprise. surprise. Okay. Sarah, jump in. Well, my biggest surprise was my only other five-star rated film this Ooh. year. Now I'll tell you for why it was a surprise. On paper. This film starring Bill Nighy. I like Bill Nighy, oh, but I yeah. also think sometimes he just has this <laughs> shtick that he does. Just plays himself. Exactly. It was Bill. It was um, you know promised as a, a film about an old man in England, several decades ago, learning what's important in life. And it's called Living. You've talked about this before. Well, I have. I feel like you have talked about it before in an episode. Because. Mm. It was absolutely stunning. So Bill Nighy mm. plays, as I say, uh, just an administrative office dude approaching retirement. He's not married and doesn't have children. He's just a nice but a very upright sort of citizen in London. And I guess we're talking, I should know properly, 40s, 50s kind of thing. Oh, 1950s. So, so, so it's a period piece. It's very much a period okay. piece. And, and, and look, to be fair to me, it wasn't that I was all sneery about it and I was going to be like, oh, God, that sounds boring. I just thought, well, you know, it'll just be one of those kind of, you know, Bridgeway movies or Lido X yeah, and I mean, listener crowd uh, kind to, of, to, to whom I write. But, but, but in a little bit, I listened to our last year's episode in preparation for this. And your detailing of It Snows in Benidorm yes. is still one of my favourite moments of our podcast. Because that was a terrible, <laughs> terrible, yeah, I remember. terrible Timothy Spall your northern accent. Oh, and I looking up did. the clouds. That's right, yeah. yeah. See, the fact that you remember that. 
So this man, no, because he's in London. So anyway, so here's the thing. Bill Nighy earned his first Oscar nomination for Living, and absolutely rightly. I mean, he did not win. What a terrible name of a movie. Can we just appreciate that? It's a boring... I know. It's, it's like that boring. I always go on about everything... No, not everything, everyone wants. It's, I almost said people, it, places, things. Is oh. one that <laughs> it's like, oh, what do you need to make a movie? You need people, places, and things. Yeah. Yeah, no. But anyway, the, I, I, I describe this in my review as a gently devastating mm. tale, and I think that that is one of its many, many strengths. He, this is not a spoiler, he he is a lovely man, uh, he gets some difficult news, and he lives. And the and he has encounters with random people, mm. um, none of which, this is a spoiler, none of which go creepy, or um, it's not sugar-coated, it's, it's not that it is saccharine or anything like that at all, it's just... Wholesome? Wholesome and heartwarming. Mm. The performance is quietly devastating mm. um it's british as and um and it is um now if i'm right it's um oh so i it, this is important to say so basically it is um a remake of akira kurosawa's 1952 really? classic oh. ikiru so oh. it's taking the japanese sensibility of uh, dignity and quiet living and respect and all mm. that, transposing it effortlessly to mm. the Britain of the 1950s mm. because that's how that sort of class would have been. Yeah, no big histrionics, no big pronouncements, just mm-hmm. a glorious film. Oh, you're selling it to me. Oh, extraordinary. It's reminding me a bit of Nomadland, just the way you're describing it. Yeah. And it's quite understated, but very rich. Absolutely. That's 100% true. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, Bill mm. Nighy, eh? Go you. Four. Anyway, that was my biggest surprise because I didn't expect it to be anything much, and it was incredible. Cool. William, what's your biggest surprise of 2023? All oh, right. So, this year was Disney's 100th celebration and it's been super cynical right um i don't know if you guys have seen all the westfield 100 and here's your childhood Mm. packaged and ready to buy um, it's awful, and this is coming from some. You know, we've talked about this before. This is from coming from someone with Playmobil yeah. all over yeah. his dining table. <laughs> but I also have to say, we've got in, a Cookie Monster cookie jar yeah. right there. We also <laughs> Disney World last year, and it was mm-hmm. their 50th anniversary oh, of yeah. the park. It was so commercial. It didn't feel like a celebration at all. It just felt like another reason to take money off me. <coughs> which is oh, really sad it's gross yeah. yeah and in Disney World as well like and back in the day when Disney would have anniversaries it would yeah. feel like an event they would yeah. release a film out of the archives and yeah. mm-hmm. you know yeah 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 and so it, it was with that heavy heart that I went into a short that they released on Disney Plus um, in October November called Once Upon a Studio Um, And the advertising around this was like, oh, so you know those movies you loved as a kid? Mm. Well, there's a short where all of them come out of their frames and have a good time and host a party in Walt Disney Animation Studios. And it sounded like the most, to use that word, saccharine piece of doo-doo out there. Mm. Uh, And so I watched it and, oh my God, this thing is a masterpiece. Did you cry in that as well? I did. Ah! I actually did. No, not maybe not because of the visuals, but right. because like it hits you in the feels. Wow. The, the, this is this is exactly what all that other Disney One Hundred stuff should have been. Mm. Right? Yeah, it's a celebration. It's a true celebration of everything since Snow White. All the little things as well. Mm. Um, this movie got me to dig into Disney Plus 
and watched like the old package films. Mm. So so I watched movies like Saludos Amigos, Three Caballeros, mm. uh, Fun and Fancy Free, which I've never seen in its entirety. It's not very good, understandably, mm. but I watched it because it was featured. Mm. Uh, Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, you know, these, oh, yeah, yeah. Th- these, these lost relics of Disney history. And they're all put front and center in this film that yeah, there's some of the commercialism there, but the most important thing is celebrating not just the characters, but also the artists. Mm. Like, so much of the film is, I mean, the story is Mickey and Minnie want to gather everyone together for a photo, Mm-mm. and so all your favorites come out of the frames. Now, the big difference between this and just a crass commercial thing is that it's really, really intentionally thrown back to not just the style, but also the technologies of the day. Mm. Like everything, I think 80% of the movie was actually hand-drawn on paper. Mm. Like it's not even computer mouse and stylus. It's on paper as it was back in the 1980s or the 1940s, you know. And so everything looks right. Peter Pan looks like Peter Pan from the 50s, right? Robin Hood or the Aristocats look like that 1960s, 70s Xerox style. Mm. The more modern stuff, you have like Moana or Raya and the Last Dragon and... And all the styles mesh together in a way that feels very, very satisfying. Mm. Um, And, of course, it's simple. And it it draws just a lot of of power and a lot of emotion from the fact that, yeah, these guys have been around 100 years. And even, you know, whether you want to admit it or not, this is an important part of our collective cinematic history and culture. Mm. And a lot of people throughout the years, like countless people have put their heart and souls into these characters and to bring them back for one big hurrah yeah. I think is wonderful stuff. Plus it's only like, it's like 11 minutes long. Yeah, uh, wow. <laughs> so, I, love that, I love that your biggest surprise is a short. We've yeah. not really done much short Well, we don't traditionally see shorts, I suppose. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, so, so I think my cynicism going into it compared to what I got out of it, I think that's why it was my biggest yeah, surprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, nice. let's flip it. What's your biggest disappointment of this year, William? <laughs> oh, my gosh. This, this pains me to say. Um, oh, guys, we, we love Wes Anderson on this podcast. Oh, right? here, yeah. Here we go. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Was I looking forward to Asteroid City? Heck, yeah, I was. Was I looking forward to the wonderful story of Henry Sugar? Yeah. I told you guys about how important this Roldell short, like the collection, is to me. Like I can recite some of those stories yeah. off by heart. I have dreamed of watching Henry Sugar on the big screen. Wait, was this your biggest disappointment, Henry my, Sugar? My biggest disappointment with Asteroid City. Oh, okay, okay. Yes, parenthesis. Yes, yes. And parts of Henry Sugar. Oh, really? <laughs> Henry Sugar was was that the Wes Anderson series of Roald Dahl? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Stories on Netflix. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm. They're, and they're, they're amazing. They're, they're, they're really good. But I think it falls into the same trap as Asteroid City does. Sure. Which is, I think Wes Anderson has become so much more um, enamored with the art of telling stories than he is with actually telling stories. Sure. Mm. Um, Have you seen Asteroid City, Jeremy? No. Oh! Because I find with Wes Anderson, I guess you're alluding to this, this William, but like, I love, when I love Wes Anderson, I love Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. But like, I wasn't a huge fan of Grand Budapest Hotel. <gasps> really? No. That's my favorite one of his. Yeah, I oh, love Life Aquatic okay. and Isle of Dogs. And 
I actually really enjoyed French Dispatch. But, oh, yeah, me, me too. Yeah, but I just find that if it gets too stylistic over story, oh, okay. I don't really want to watch that. I feel like Asteroid City, and sorry, because mm. this is your, your pick mm, for the disappointment, it. Yeah. but yeah, it, it, I mean, and the reviews had said it's style over substance, but still you hope, but it did, did just feel like, yes, yeah, it's super pretty. Mm. I don't care yeah. about anything that's happening. And here's the thing, right? The movie is structured in a way, without major spoilers, to make you care less. Yeah. Right? The very start of the movie says that all of this is fiction. Right. And so why, why should I care about these characters when they don't even exist within the realities of the movie? And technically, things are happening in the movie that if it were done differently, yeah. it would be heartbreaking. Yeah, oh my gosh, You yeah. know, there's some sad stuff going on, you know, so yeah. It's... And so I was so removed from the, the story that the movie was That's saying. That's right. Um, intentionally, because Wes Anderson, it seems like, again, his interests are about the... Um, the the con- conceit and well, yeah. not even the, the aesthetic oh, kind of definitely the the, 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 aesthetic. Cent- the central conceit of the film which is that it's a film about a film about a film right basically right it's, it's couched in several layers like a, mm. a nesting doll mm. um and i just found that to be mm. so alienating yeah and so all the stuff with schwartzman and scarlett johansson and, and tom tom hanks like it's as you say sarah it's devastating stuff yeah but i don't feel any no. at all um, and I know Henry Sugar works a lot better because it's kind of taking Dahl's prose and then putting it on top of that. Yeah. But again, my problem with Henry Sugar is that just on a personal level, it was completely not what I pictured in my head over That's, 20 years. And, and to be fair, I feel the same way. Like I loved the Henry Sugar. I loved watching it because mm-hmm. it's the sort of thing that I would have been wanting to see my whole life. Right. But you're absolutely right. The short story, which is a long short story of Henry Sugar is just breathtaking when you're reading it yourself and it is in your own head and thank goodness he uses um Roald Dahl's prose mm-hmm. to the letter because if you rewrote that or paraphrased it you would be you know that yeah, would you be would a lo- sin you would lose a lot it would be tantamount to misinterpreting the bible it really would mm-hmm. um and so he did the best he could with doing that but you're absolutely right you're then being forced to see pictures that aren't necessarily exactly as impactful or, right. or quite what you would have thought. So that's mm. interesting. And that mm. makes sense as a disappointment because you've got a lot of emotion yeah. caught up in how you want that to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's yours, Sarah? What's your biggest disappointment of this year? Um, look, this is such a banal thing to say, but I think I, I, I'd initially thought Whitney Houston, I want to dance with somebody. And then I was oh. a bit confused and I was like, maybe that was last year, but I reviewed it this year. So it must have come out this year. And I actually gave it three stars but it wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. But then I decided actually a bigger disappointment was the creator. And I know that we mm. devoted a podcast to this a couple of um, months ago, but I think it was so disappointing because it looked amazing in the trailer and the theme tune. I know they never use the tune <laughs> in the trailer that they're going to, they never use it in the movie, but that's not the point. It looked to me so exciting and so rad and so awesome. And I do not need to belabor the point as to why that film was just a crushing disappointment for me. Um, I, I, you, you've quite rightly said, Jeremy, that when we're recording this, we still have a few weeks of the year left to go and there's some heavy hitting stuff to come out. Um, I actually can't remember when Ferrari's coming out, for example. Maybe that's in the new year. But if that lets me down, and that's Michael Mann as well, yeah. I will be crushingly disappointed. The trailer's so good. Exactly. The trailer is great. Michael Mann is, you know, the director of my favourite film of all time, Heat, 1996. And... Um, and it's got Adam Driver and so on. I could be more disappointed Ooh. if that goes mm. wrong. Um, but 
Um, I think, yeah, I don't need to belabor the point. I just think the creator, we talked about dear old John David Washington and um, narratively, who cares? Uh, yeah, 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 there was just a lot that didn't really work. Mm, yeah. I appreciate that. So I consider my biggest disappointment. I mean, <clears throat> I, you know, I, I didn't go into The Flash with massive expectations, but it was still a bit meh. It could have mm-hmm. been better. Um, Bo is Afraid was another oh, one. I put yeah. that down actually as a as a, a big disappointment. Yeah, yeah that was in my shortlist. Did short we go list. see that together? I don't know. Um, I Did don't. We go see that I, together. I still haven't <clears throat> seen it. Oh, it's it's yeah. got some really cool stuff in it, and it's got lots of just silly stuff in it. Overall, as well. I went two or two and a half on it. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, it was just like what. And then the ending doesn't land. And oh, it's depressing. Dear. Yeah. And... Okay. But Joaquin's great. He's um, great. Peter Lapona's great. Sure. Oh, Peter Lapona's in this? Parker yeah. great. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, the cast is really good. And I think the some of the sequences in and of themselves, like that opening sequence is so stressful. And it's it's um, very similar to probably how you felt watching Mother, right? That's People right. Sitting on the, That's right. Yeah. A party sort of happens to oh, him. Yeah. But, it, but that's... This, this, is not my favorite, this is not my biggest disappointment, by the way. But can I just say, that's our director from Midsummer and whatnot, isn't yeah. it? So, you know, Ari Aster. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it was always going to be a nasty piece of work so I don't in a way it wasn't it, do you know what I mean in a way it wasn't a surprising disappointment it was just I'd loved Midsummer. yeah and re, yeah so I guess anyway, I guess yep. I put it there because my my disappointments over the last couple of years and this is the case with what I'm about to say and with Bo is Afraid as well are films that are that could have been my favorite movie of the year oh, yeah. but for a few key elements right you know? um and so my biggest disappointment of 2023 is Spider-Man Across the Universe. Oh! Um, because I was I was watching that movie, and I've said this to you all before, but I was watching that movie thinking, this is an 11 out of 10 film, mm. you know, to mm-hmm. quote Spinal Tap, and I thought, this is the culmination of cinema. This is doing everything that we've been building towards over the last 100 years. It is, it is firing in all cylinders. And then, you know, I loved all the scenes with um, Gwen Stacy and I thought characterization of Miles Morales took mm. another step. I thought the visuals were just mm. out of this world, literally. Um, and I just, the ending for me, we, it went nowhere. That movie didn't go anywhere. And as a result, I actually can barely remember what the story's mm. even about. Yeah. I remember the emotional stakes with Gwen and her father. And mm. I remember... Um, kind of the whole sequence with all of the spider men and spider woman and spider creatures mm. but i'm like on the block the blobby blocked guy oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i like I, I love that yeah. yeah but i just think that movie did didn't have an ending and so therefore for me it didn't have a reason for me to care about it beyond just the the, the beauty of the visuals right. and the mm. kind of pop culture the ride, referencing if you will. yeah yeah and it's like if that had had an ending it could have still had that cliffhanger ending. It wasn't yeah. the cliffhanger that was the issue with me. No. It was the fact that there was no climax to the story. Sure. Um, and so I, I keep coming back to Avengers Infinity War. They had such a clear arc, that movie. Mm-hmm. And then Endgame was quite a different film. And yet Infinity War ended with a great cliffhanger. Yeah. Um, and I just wish that. And I, I do still wonder as well if this is a marketing issue. If that had been labelled as part one, yeah. I might have felt yes, different. that's right. right. That's right. You would have forgiven that. In the way that we had to with it. Dune and things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, with Dune, it's the same thing. Dune has no ending. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't begrudge it as much. Because I still am a little bit frustrated. But I yeah. knew. Mm-hmm. Whereas I had no idea. I had no idea Across the Universe was going to be a part yeah, one. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. And I just, when I saw the IMAX, I think I was, was I by myself with some mm-hmm. friends? Mm-hmm. But I just got lost in that movie. Mm. I was doing um, a stage show in the Civic Theatre at the time. Mm-hmm. I went after a Sunday matinee, you know. Anyways, 
That's my biggest disappointment. Hmm. Sarah, do you want to jump in with your wild card film of this year? Yes. Um, now, you mentioned, um, I, I do have just a couple of mentions, and one of them is Triangle of Sadness. Hey. I knew that people had said it was great. I also knew that Ruben Ostland might be quite challenging for me. And I think in a way, and in a way perhaps this should have been in my, list, my short list for biggest surprise, is that Triangle of Sadness literally has all the things I hate and I absolutely loved the has film. so much poop. So <laughs> much poop. Scatological humour in the extreme. Vomit and puke and everything else. It at has the same time. Dread, yeah, all at the same time. It has dreadful people being dreadful. It has people who get massively drunk and taught talk rubbish it has Woody Harrelson although he's all right um and and yet that film was fabulous however that is not my pick for wild card now forgive me I actually have two one is a wild card because it was so unexpected and absolutely bloody awesome um and then the other is like what which I'll tell you in a minute so Scrapper Scrapper is a really small English film by uh, a young woman, I want to say, Jessica, da-da-da, I could be wrong, let me, give me a and second. again, I feel like, Sarah, you've talked about this one before. Of course I am, because it's amazing. Yeah. Right, Charlotte Regan, yeah? Mm-hmm. So Charlotte Regan made this film called Scrapper. The reason I'm talking like this, yeah, is it's set in, um, I, I want to say East London, it might be West London, yeah? There's a little girl, and her name's Georgie, and she's like six or seven or something like that, and her mum dies right at the beginning of the film. She's got no one else yet, but she's really plucky, and she always, like, looks after herself. She doesn't need nobody. But then one day, her dad, <laughs> right, who she's never met, her dad, who was a young, a young lad, mm. he jumps over, the, literally, like, jumps over the back fence and is all like, all right, Georgie, I'm your dad, I'm here to be with you. And she's like, I don't need you. Um, and then, of course, you've got two odd bods trying mm. to like figure out that they actually need each other, you know, other. Anyway, <laughs> the dad is played by Triangle of Sadnesses, Harris or Aris mm. Dickinson. Now, back in the day, yeah, I saw The King's Man and I thought, what a dumb film. <laughs> Who's this Aris Dickinson? He's a nomad. He'll never amount to nothing. Then he was in Triangle of Sadness. He was amazing. Now he's in Scrapper. He's a whole different sort of amazing. I loved him. So, <laughs> the, all the things that are beautiful about yeah, their performances are amazing and he's incredible. And now I like get it about him. She's amazing. I don't even think she'd, she'd done nothing before. She's mm. just a kid, yeah? But it was so brave because, and Charlotte Regan must be an extraordinary young director because she put, do you want me to go back? No, it's <laughs> Because she puts, she, puts, uh, <laughs> she puts Harris Dickinson together with this young lass and, and it's brilliant because mm. they don't know each other and, and in real life is what I'm saying and then they have to perform as a mm. father and daughter who are like reconnected against each of their wills. And there are some stunning moments that if they're not improv, they are extraordinarily Mm. well scripted. And if they are improv, then this little kid in particular is amazing Mm. in the way that she, as a a newcomer to acting, let alone anything else, is able to riff with Mm. Harris Dickinson. It's absolutely stunning. It's the feature debut of the writer-director, Charlotte Regan. Um, and the interesting thing, or not, but a bit of trivia, her cinematographer is a, a, a another young British director called Molly Manning Walker, and she made the film that came to the film festival here and is doing marvels around the world called How to Have Sex. So I don't know if you saw the NZIFF How to Have Sex. That was directed by Molly Manning Walker, who's also a cinematographer, mm. and she shot Charlotte's film. Right. So there you go. So um, Scrapper... 
absolutely brilliant. Totally recommend it, yeah? Wow. Find it wherever you can. You will have such a great time. Now, now, my other one, and I cannot do the accent now because we're <laughs> moving to Japan. <laughs> oh my gosh. In the film festival, I went to see this film called River. Mm-hmm. Now, you know me. I'm not great with science. I find time travel very difficult. I find understanding tides very difficult. Just, tides? Yeah. As in the tide coming in and out? Yeah. Like, and how it... Well, yeah, I don't want to get into it, Jeremy. Now's <laughs> not the time. A segue. <laughs> no, my husband and I joke... Time travel and tides. <laughs> no, my Sorry. husband and I joke about the fact... Because sometimes he'll tell me something and I'll look a bit confused oh. and he'll go, oh, tides. <laughs> um, you, you, you're remi- reminding me of that bit from Bill, uh, Bill O'Reilly's old show where he's like, time co- tide comes in, tide goes out. You can't explain that. <laughs> oh, I can't. And I don't wish to now. Um, but no, listen. I saw this film called River. It is set in a, uh, a gorgeous little village outside of Kyoto, mm-hmm. um, whose name I suddenly can't remember, and it doesn't really matter. But it's set in a real-life little village, very traditional, lots of red, uh, orangey red arches, and this little Japanese village. And it's set in a, um, a bathhouse, an onsen, mm-hmm. uh, and inexplicably... Um, a young woman in a kimono is is um, dealing with the customers and then she pops down to the river and she's just down there having a little break before she goes back in to deal with the next customer. And then all of a sudden, time stops and it reverses. No, I, I lie. She's down at the river. She goes inside and within two minutes, time stops and suddenly she finds herself out back by the river. And she's incredibly discombobulated to start with. How have I suddenly come back here? But when she goes inside, it transpires everybody else is also going, well, what happened there? And then two minutes, boom, back she's down on the river and she comes through. And the film time loops, two minutes, two minutes, two minutes, two minutes, with, of course, the crowd... It's like a Groundhog Day where everybody realises everybody's going, what the heck is going on? And by the time they get to the point where they're like, we don't know, but what are we going to do about it? Then they get to build. It's a little bit like Edge of Tomorrow. They Mm. get to build on it every time. So this is not a spoiler, but, you know, several, several loops in. They're like, when it happens again, I'll see you across the road in the meeting room. And they try to get to the meeting room in time, but then she's struggling to get up the stairs in time, and it time loops and she's back to the river. So next time she knows to take her shoes off and try and get there in time. Do you know what I mean? That sounds great. It's so fun. As someone who's a massive fan of time travel. And, and the time tides. loops. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the and tides. Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it sounds like a great It's watch. a great yeah. time. Highly recommended. Totally Aww. bizarre. And um, Love it. Yeah. So that was, that's definitely my wild card. Nice. <sighs> drops, drops mic. Yeah. <laughs> really, what's your wild card of the year? Um, so th- thanks for bringing up um, Asian cinema because I, I have two picks. Um, we don't usually talk about things beyond the sphere of uh, Hollywood or, you know, Western indie movies. Or what's been released here. We it, tend to exactly, talk about, don't we? Exactly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, for example, my, my knowledge of Bollywood and Hollywood movies mm. is almost zero, mm. right? I just don't have that connection. And I, I wish I did. Mm. I just don't have time. Um, what I do watch, though, are often uh, Chinese movies. Mm. Um, and there's these massive blockbusters that come out every year, kind of tailor-made for a Chinese audience. That is just, it's not released anywhere else. Or if it is, it's like the tiniest little film fest thing, whereas mm. in China it makes... Gob loads of money. What know? about the Asian cinema screenings, though, in the Queen Street event? Uh, they, they... they would probably have these movies. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I just oh, okay. ha- have not looked into this. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, and so, 
I, I have two. One of them is called Chang'an, or uh, the English name is Chang'an, but the Chinese name is Chang'an Sanwanli, or uh, 30,000 Miles to Chang'an. And you guys, this is one of the most culturally specific movies I have ever seen. It is going to be alienating to anyone who is not Chinese. I mean that in both a good way and a bad way. The whole of China, though? Because even within China, uh, different cultures. Well, I, I guess you just have to understand Chinese poetry. Okay. It is a blockbuster, an animated blockbuster, three hours long, yeah. beautifully animated, about um, what, like the most famous Chinese poet of all time, Li Bai, during the Tang Dynasty. Ah, Li Bai. And, and his mm-hmm. friend, his yep. friend, Gao Shi. Ah. And... Guys, this is the equivalent of if, if Hollywood made a multi-million dollar blockbuster of like Wordsworth and Keats. Right. And they team up to fight crime. Whoa! Like, <laughs> like obviously, historically, uh, I'm pretty sure Li Bai wasn't like a, a kung fu monk. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But basically, it's them growing up together um there are several things drawn from history you know uh one of them was working for the government the other guy kind of became a recluse and then a taoist uh, monk of sorts yeah um intersperses real history also makes it a uh, bromance of sorts that kind of goes sour um there are huge battle sequences and then in the middle of this are they rap battles Oh, well, Are they yeah, like yeah. poet battles? Uh, do, 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 does poetry feature in these battles? Wow. Heck yeah, it does. <laughs> and so you're having like Tang, Tang Dynasty Chinese poetry, which like most Chinese texts through high school or yeah. even, even primary school, you learn these poems, right? So I could recite some of them. Uh, there's 300 famous ones. Um, and it contextualizes them in a way so that when someone is saying a poem, it's kind of like Fantasia, where the background fades away, oh. and it's an abstract visualization of the poem done in inks or or like paper cranes, oh, or wow. it's so cool. But again, completely impenetrable to anyone who has no idea what, what these poems are, <laughs> because the poems themselves, because it's it's ancient Chinese texts, yeah. like they are quite abstract, and the language is archaic. And and so it's like okay, this is this is not made for Western audiences. And so even of course subtitles. So this is an interesting argument. Oh, the subtitles are really good um, because I had it with English and Chinese subtitles on. Yeah. Um, and the English subtitles are decent, and the translation of the poems are also pretty decent as well. Are they and presumably not literal, but figurative? Exactly. Exactly. So so whoever did like bravo to them because it's hard to translate these poems. Um, but it's like. You just won't mm. care because, like Tang Shi, the the Tang Dynasty poems, they are such a core tenet of Chinese literature yeah. that if you don't know that or if you don't really care about that, the yeah. movie has nothing for you. Wow! Um, but again, this this is a movie that made two hundred and sixty million US dollars in the Chinese box office. Yeah. It is the second most profitable animated movie in Chinese history. Yeah, and it's it's like okay, so I guess you know having cultural specificity can be a good of thing. Of course. Mm. <laughs> but my the, the one I I want to highlight more than this because I enjoyed it a lot more. Like China's is pretty good that's pretty clunky but it is pretty good again it's a our epic about poets yeah um but the one that i saw again this is a 2022 movie that i saw in january yeah it blew me away have you guys heard of moon man Mm-mm. so it's a chinese blockbuster based on a korean webcomic about a guy stranded on the moon okay mm. so it's kind of mm-hmm. like the martian oh yeah except 
It's the Martian, which is a Ridley Scott film. Yeah, yeah that's we right. We talk about that. In we our talked last... about Ridley in the last. Yeah, well, we did not mention. Yeah, the Martian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is what if the Martian was set on the moon, and all of humanity was dead. Mm. Okay, so so the conceit again. Yeah. This happens in the first five minutes of the movie. Yeah, the conceit is that um, uh, United Nations forms like a peacekeeping thing. Uh, because the asteroid is coming our way. And yeah. so they have all these anti-asteroid things on the moon. Something goes wrong. Um, everyone vacates to Earth. And one guy is left behind. Well, so what's the point? The asteroid hits Earth, wipes out civilization. Well, what would you do? And it's this, this one guy. And it's a character study about this one guy trapped on the moon base. I would just... Yeah. It's incredible. Oh, you're not asking oh, oh. me what would I do? No, I'm thinking, like, what? no but I mean, like, what's the point? Ah, here's the you thing. can't procreate with yourself. Here's the thing, Sarah. Life's uh, more than procreation. This is... Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, if the... If it, if it, yeah, the right. humanity is... Where this is, at the, at the same time, a t- as you say, a terribly sad, is existential question about life, the universe. For me, it would have been a short film. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> at the same time, at the same time, this is a Stephen Chow Edgar Wright style wacky comedy with a talking kangaroo. Oh, it is wow. everything at once. I think right? you lost me at kangaroo. Okay, so <laughs> it, it is. A, a, stay with me. Just stay with me for no. a little bit. Um, it is a a very very goofy comedy about the end of the world. Right, extremely goofy. Like you you see. Again, there's a talking kangaroo in it. That's how goofy it is. But, but like, the storytelling in this film obviously draws so much influence from Stephen Chow. I'm thinking of God of Cookery and Shaolin Soccer specifically. Mm. And also Edgar Wright and, mm. and how montages are edited together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. And everything I just told you guys about, like, the, the moon, the bass, all of that is done in a three-minute montage mm. at the start of the movie. Man- mankind gets wiped out and then the title credits smash cut and yeah. i'm just on the edge of my seat going oh my god yeah I- i've never seen storytelling like this yeah it is so rapid fire i think a lot of it is inspired by filmmaking on tiktok as well right yeah. kind of that mishmashing of images together to make something coherent but that it is really, really like overstimulating. Overstimulating. What's it called again? Moon Man. That's Moon it. Man. Um, uh, and it, it's just—it's one of the most wonderful things I've seen all year. It is funny. It's ingenious. It's very, very heartfelt, and it never lets like the sad part of the story overwhelm the happy or the joyous part of the story. Every time something horrible happens. It never for, you never forget that you're watching a movie where again it's super super like Buster Keaton slapstick goofy right um, and the balance of those two halves of the movie as well as the sci-fi conceits are extraordinary. Okay, so that is Moon Man. Wow, yeah. nice. Well, I sort of considered a few different wild cards. In fact, one of them I had forgotten about until you mentioned it to me on. Thursday night, um, William, when we went to saw a film together. Um, I want to I highlight Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny as a runner-up. Yeah. Because that's a massive blockbuster that I feel like nobody watched. Um. And it actually was pretty good. Mm. Yeah. Um, the ending was amazing. Yeah, and I thought it was a really fitting fifth and potentially final entry into that series. Mm. Um, I want to mention Red, White and Royal Blue. So um, it's a book adaptation. It's a romantic comedy with a ridiculous premise, as many romantic comedies are. Um, it's a queer comedy. So um, what if the son of the president fell in love with the, 
the grandson of the King of England. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's quite a wonderful film. Oh like my it's gosh! Cheesy as, but there's some really. Um, I guess in terms of it like being a gay love story, it's made the director and the writer, definitely the director is gay, and you can tell that the awareness of what it means to be in those relationships is present in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it depicts sex and relationships in quite a responsible way because mm-hmm. if I think about texts like sex, sex Education, which I've still got to finish the final season of that, mm. It's quite that's quite irresponsible. It's sort mm-hmm. of it's for, or euphoria is another one, mm. right? It's like these mm-hmm. shock factors that people say, well, it's R-rated. It's not for young people. It's like, well, young people are watching these things, mm. and it's whereas this this film kind of does a much better job with that topic. Um, but I am going to pick a TV series as my wild card mm. because okay. I don't really know what to do with this text, <laughs> and it, but it stuck with me, even though I forgot about it the other night, and you reminded me. And that, that is Mrs. Davis, <laughs> which is the Lindelof, um, Damon Lindelof and the creator of The Big Bang Theory collaborated on this television series that I watched and nobody seems to be watching it. Yeah. Mm. Um, wonderful performances. <clears throat> it's set in a world where an AI known as Mrs. Davis has effectively taken over the world and made the world a better place. Or has it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and who does her voice? I can't remember. Oh, okay, so not not like okay, not Kate Blanchett. No. no, and um, and it's about a the main character is a nun, who has a reason, and we discover as the show goes on, to hate and distrust the AI. Okay. Um, and the opening <clears throat> episode is about the AI having a meeting with this nun and saying, "I need you to find the Holy Grail and destroy it." <laughs> Uh, sorry, I need you to find the Holy Grail. Yes, and destroy it. And she says, what do you want to return? And the nun says, cool, if I do that for you, then you need to turn yourself off. And so that's the kind of setup of the series. It's very strange. It's I, had one season. Yeah, and it would as well, because it's a miniseries. Like, mm-hmm. it has a very satisfying ending. Like, if you can get to the ending, all of the pieces fall into oh, place good, in good. a really satisfying way. But it is weird. Like you, you will know whether you can handle it from the first episode, because... <laughs> sure. You're like, what am I watching? In fact, the first few episodes are so weird. Um, tonally, it's all over the show. It's kind of trying to be funny at times, and it's not very funny. And sometimes it is very funny. Um, I find Betty Gilpin, who is the lead. Oh, okay. I f- yeah. find her funny. She's great. It's not the one yeah. with the the poster of the nun on the um, motorbike. Motorbike. Yeah, that's yes. it. Oh, right. Yeah. So that's my wild card, is Mrs. Mm. Davis, mainly because I need other people to watch it so you can tell me whether it's any good or not. Right. <laughs> to validate you. Well, not to so validate I'm me. Joking. I just need to figure out what I think yeah. about I'm it. I'm Nobody else is watching it. No. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Right. Should we finish yeah, off with pick. our... Well, that, I mean, feels like a good segue, isn't it? So, yeah. Sarah, let's go to you. Um, we'll go around the circle. Well... Best TV of 2023. Oh, look, there's no question. Jury duty. Ah, oh, of course. Have you guys watched it yet? Or like, why are we even friends? You've you've asked us yeah. this question multiple oh, times. I watched my one episode. Yeah, I, I've also now watched one episode. Okay, well, don't tell me that you didn't like it. I'm not going to spoiler it. Mm-hmm. The premise is the thing. So, jury duty is 
reality television, no, non-fiction programming, uh, but the premise is absolute genius, and it is a comedy, um, without question. Jury Duty is, uh, don't ask me, I don't know, six episodes, eight episodes, I'm not 100% sure, doesn't matter. It's a proper, proper series, and it goes behind the scenes of a jury on a relatively lo-fi uh, court, a criminal court case in America. So the whole conceit of it is pretty straightforward. Uh, if it were a normal reality show, what they would be doing is they would be uh, getting the pool of people in, they would be getting the jury jurors uh, picked, and then we would be going behind the scenes and talking to the jurors who are in a court case, and we would be going behind the scenes of an actual court case because as it says on the title card at the beginning of the show um, legally you are not allowed to ever know what goes on in a juror's room so this um, a juror's decision room so this is groundbreaking and this is the first opportunity to actually do that the big joke is every single person in the show from the judge to the uh, accused to the uh, court officials, to the 11 members of the jury are actors, and one guy is a real guy. And this one guy, who I want to call Ronald all of a sudden, oh my God, he is the most gorgeous, wonderful, good-hearted, ordinary young American man, who thinks that he knows that he's part of a reality TV show, a documentary series, so he knows that... Um, he has given consent to be interviewed about the way the court case is going. Um, but what he doesn't know and does not find out, of course, until the very end, is that uh, all the other people are actors. And the piece de résistance is that one of the acting jury members is the real-life James Marsden. So the actor, James Marsden, plays himself, although in that brilliant sort of way, plays um, a slightly hyperbolic, a slightly mm -hmm. caricatured version of himself. Um, so Ronald, oh my God, I hope his name is Ronald after all this. Um, is it Ron Weasley? Oh no, Ronald Gladden, that's oh, Glenn, right. That's so, right. So Ronald Gladden, he does know that James Marsden's a real person. So initially he's a little bit starstruck and then they mm. just become mates because real, real James Marsden would be a real good guy. Um, and it is absolutely priceless, hilarious, heartwarming. And may I just say, if anyone is listening and thinking that sounds really mean, it is never, ever mocking at anybody except James Marsden by consent. <laughs> but it's never mocking. So there is not the case of, <laughs> we're laughing at Ronald Gladden because he's not in, 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 on, the, in on this. Um, and it's, oh my God, absolutely brilliant television, fascinating, fascinating, legit documentary making in that you don't know how things are going to go until they unfold and this is not a spoiler but the the production team have written what they hope might happen but they've got to work with how things go mm. and so um they try and set up certain scenarios and then depending on how ronald deals with that scenario the path might go off slightly differently I could not recommend it more highly. I cannot wait to watch it again. Mm. Uh, and my favorite moment, which I will spoiler, happens very early on when they are selecting the jury. And uh, so for those of you who don't know, in jury selection, the prosecutor and the defense get to ask each possible juror a series of questions to ascertain whether they should or shouldn't be on the jury. So James Marsden stands and they say, uh, the prosecutor says, have you ever been on a jury before? And he says, yes, I have. And she says, well, where was that? And he said, uh, can. And, <laughs> and, she, and the prosecutor goes, can in France? And he says, 
yes, can the the film festival. And she's like, no, no, not that sort of jury. Have you ever? And he's like, oh, no, 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 I haven't. <laughs> that reminds me of a Schitt's, a Schitt's Creek improvisation when um, Catherine O'Hara <clears throat> gets asked about her favourite season. She goes, awards. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, it's yeah. exactly. So there you go, jury duty. And I can, uh, mm. so there we are. Nice. Thank you, thank you for listening to my TED Talk. <laughs> I appreciate it. William, yeah. I think we're going to hear William's TED Talk now. You've got yeah. a, you got a list of, of runner-ups. I, I do have a list of runner-ups. First of all, I just want to highlight something uh, that I've mentioned on the show before, um, I think two years ago, which is Reservation Dogs. Mm. And again, a show that apparently no one watches. Yeah. But it is one of the greatest shows, and now it's over. I know a lot of people who watch it. Oh, good. Oh, but, thank, but you. I thank you. I didn't get into it. Mm. It's um, So they <clears throat> just finished season three, and yeah. that is the final season. Um, and season two and three, I think season two is probably a little stronger than season three, because season three, they knew they were mm. ending, and mm. so they kind of just throw everything they want to tell, every kind of story they want to tell, mm. and see what sticks. And mm. some of it works better than, than others. But it doesn't matter that it's an un- uneven show. Mm. What Reservation Dogs is doing is unprecedented, right? Mm-hmm. I- I've talked before about how the entire creative endeavor mm. is indigenous-driven, mm. uh, telling a very, very specific o- uh, Oklahoman indigenous story. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and yeah, it's just it's a slice of life featuring these kids on a reservation. Mm. Um, in season three, they start finding their own paths forward into an uncertain future. And it is some of the most heartfelt and equally some of the most hilarious writing I've ever seen on television. One, one final thing that I do want to highlight, which is uh, I told you guys you got to watch the show, which is Scavenger's Reign on HBO Max or Max, the one to watch for HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you guys know Mobius, the French illustrator? Mm. Uh, so s- amazing sci-fi art, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Imagine Mobius mixed with Akira, so the the manga or anime with mm-hmm. horrible genetic mutations and psychic powers, mm-hmm. mixed with uh, if you know the video game Subnautica, which is a survival game underwater, mm-hmm. mixed with the film Annihilation. Oh okay. yeah, Scavenger's Reign is a beautiful animated series about a crew of a almost Nostromo-like hauler who crash land on an uncharted planet. And the survivors need to, you know, make sense of their surroundings and try and get away to get off planet. The problem is their surroundings are A, beautiful, and B, trying to kill them, mm-hmm. right? It is a show that is obsessed with creating a fictional ecosystem where everything feels very, very original and different. You've never seen alien plants and animals like these before. And they are, again, at the same time, beautiful and extremely dangerous. Mm. And it's about three disparate groups of survivors trying to get back to the main ship and about the stories of survival as they go through this. Really, really Is that on a streamer here? Yes. Uh, well, it's, it's on Max, the one to watch for HBO. Uh, there are options of watching it in New Zealand and Australia. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think you guys know my series of the year. Um, I've raved about it as well. Mm. Uh, it's the Bear Season 2. Yeah. Oh, no, I, mean, nice. I don't mind that you mention that because okay. we finished watching Bear hey. Season 2 last night. Are you watching the Bear? No, but I want to. Okay. And I've watched a little bit of it and I've loved what I've seen. Okay. I love the season actors one. in it. Yeah. No, yeah. but it's Season 2 because oh, okay. my, oh, my family yeah. watches it. So yeah. you're but I have no done... context. I have no context. Oh, so you jump straight into Season 2? Oh, like a random piece of episode here and oh, there so i don't feel like yeah. i've had anything spoiled because i didn't really know what was going on right but the reason what stopped me is that you know working in a restaurant is one of the worst 
times of my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I just have to be I have to be in the right headspace to And it's get a through. very stressful program. Mm. Yeah. No matter who you are. I've mm. never worked mm-hmm. in a restaurant. I only eat in restaurants. Yeah. I've never had a, a mother like Jamie Lee Curtis's <laughs> character. And See, I've heard of this, but I haven't got to that. Okay. It's okay. And that's not a spoiler. It's mm. just, you know, she's a challenging yeah. mom. But it, oh my gosh, Chris, it is a stress. The Christmas episode with Jamie Lee Curtis made me feel sort of physically sick. Yes. Um, mm. Yeah, because it's it's a Christmas gathering of a very Italian family. Mm. And what what transpires in that episode, you're like, okay, this makes so much more sense. But also, the, and then I guess they count as cameos. But the, Oh, there's the, so many famous the people. The guest, star, guest stars in it will blow your mind. <laughs> yeah. mm. And you think, oh, that's an interesting kind of one-off episode, flashback. Yeah. But actually, everything in the bear is context. Yeah. And that's what's... Oh, sorry, this was your oh, show. Oh, no, no, go for it, go for it. But it's 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 very, very well done. Very mm. well done. And there will be tiny, not Easter eggs, but callbacks to things that are not made explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, that you go, oh, that's why they mentioned that in that episode. Oh, that's why he went there. Oh, look, oh, that's yeah. cute that they brought that back. Hey, it's yeah. very, very it, well written. It's, it's mm. so tight. Like callbacks very. to season one and also earlier episodes in season two. Yeah. Um, completely agreed, Sarah. Like so much of season two, is constructed like it's like a, a Swiss watch. It's clockwork. Yeah. Right? Um, now, I did love a show before that really sold later on, which is Ted Lasso. Mm. And I find I still yeah, haven't watched. We, I still we gave it up. I haven't watched the final season. No, ne- neither. We, <laughs> yeah. we we haven't. We gave it up. I found the end of season two so frustrating right. and disappointing. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And season I one just episode crushed me. Yeah, I think I watched one episode of season three. And I don't um, know if I want to watch Nick Muhammad. Turn into what he turns yeah. into, but anyway, yeah, 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 and yeah. And so yeah. I think the bear, compl- the bear understands that there's a lot of lasso comparisons, right? Yeah. As I said last time when I talked about the bear, and what was it last year's episode or the year before? Um, like, it has there's a lot of lasso comparisons. It's, yeah. It's about a work family that have to struggle through their differences in order yeah. to get to a better place. But what the bear does in season two is that it understands that each of these characters need their moment to be alone. Yeah to shine in their own spheres of influence, but also for those stories to tie back in a really big way with the main restaurant storyline, which yeah, is what Lasso yeah, doesn't yeah, do. Yeah. I, I remember the Coach Beard episode. Mm. And it's like, what are we doing here? Is this just it. a waste of time? Yeah, yeah, no, that um, was. And so the Beard does amazing things. Like, um, I'm just going like, to gush about it. There's an episode with Sydney, so Eberdiri's character, where she just goes on a foodie trip around Chicago trying to find um, inspiration for a dish. And it is one of the most beautiful visualizations of the creative process I've ever seen. Like, sort of like Fantasia or Ratatouille or Eat Man, Drink Woman. Like, she's eating these things, and as she's doing so, it cuts to a, a screen of pitch black. And these flashes of color and of sauce and ingredients start to to coalesce. It is in like her an mind. extraordinary. I said to Doug as we were finishing the episode last mm. night. It is like an extraordinary cooking show at the same time because <laughs> mm. she makes an omelette in one. Episode, oh, that omelette! And you think, oh, oh, write this down, write this down. Yeah. You know, and yet it isn't like that. It's not five hundred grams or da da da. But you, the whole making of it, mm. and then this is not a spoiler, as I always say. <laughs> and then later in the episode, she talks about the pleasure of having made the omelette. And you yeah. think, I got that. And she's an actress. But, yeah. you know, you think, yeah, I, I could see that while you were doing it. It felt like fun and loving. And 
and intentional and magical mm -hmm. and the person receives it thus and she says that's how I felt making it well that's great acting television oh, writing yeah. everything. Mm. everything photography everything <laughs> do you know really it's amazing and, and I think that is what balances all the stressful bits because I yeah. think season two mellows out quite a bit from season one season one there's some episodes there's the one shot episode yeah which is like by the end of it you're <sighs> yeah. left breathless yeah. yeah season two the Christmas episode gets to that place but yeah. it's much more about exploring the characters and situations yeah. uh, and the final thing I'll say uh, again um, I, I think MVP for me this season is uh, Ebo Moss ba uh, Bacharach yeah. who plays Cousin Richie yeah. um, don't his... explain why I, I won't I won't um, what is MVP? Uh, most, most valuable, valuable player, player. <laughs> but again so... it's a character who starts off as just a kind of a, um, yeah, a supporting character he's just someone in the background who swears a lot and he's the butt of the jokes mm. right? and how privileging it is to give yeah. everybody their moment yeah. to become a real person a, re a real boy a, re a real boy <laughs> And yeah. his his character, as well as the rest of the restaurant, but specifically his, like I, my heart grew three sizes. Like yeah. it's just it's so satisfying the storytelling involved, and um yeah, this show is just firing on all cylinders. I can't wait to see what they come up with next. Nice, cool. I do, and it's one I do want to see definitely. Yeah. But I need to be in the right kind of <laughs> yeah. prepare myself. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I've watched mostly reality television this year, and you both know I'm a huge, a huge fan of Survivor, mm -hmm. yeah. which I'm on another podcast with my friends, we talk about it, and Survivor releases two seasons a year. Um, I'm watching season 45 right now, um, but season 44 had a, a castmate called Caroline, and she was just some of the best comedy gold I've seen <laughs> They're all ever. American, yes? Uh, Canadian and American. No, what I mean is it's an American show, sorry, yeah. Survivor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but that, you know, we don't, we don't talk about reality TV. I just had to say that, though, that that show has just got such mm. a special place in my heart. Um, I really enjoyed Poker Face this year. I oh, think nice. Ryan yeah, Johnson's... Yeah, I watched a couple of episodes. Yeah. And I yeah. like those being relatively standalone. Yeah. yeah. With, yeah. A, you know, the odd it's, it's reference like, to others. It's like the Incredible Hulk of the Hulk solved yeah, crimes everywhere. That's and, nice, and it's a great it? because you know who does... The, you always start the episode with... <laughs> Knowing how. ...what the crime is. And, and then work it's, backwards. And then you work backwards and you realise that Natasha leon has been there the whole time yeah, or comes into it. Yeah. And how is she going yeah. to not only figure this out... But do the right Use thing and skills. give them to the police without giving yourself away. Like yeah. it's a great and then conceit. move on like the littlest hobo. Yeah. <laughs> um, but and that would have been my my series of the year if it weren't for um, something coming out this weekend. So this is something that has yet to be released, but it is something that I have been waiting for for years. Um, it's something that I uh, grieve about when I first engaged with this content. And then when I heard about the plans that this director had, maybe three or four or five years ago, I was like, oh my gosh, I need to see that. And that is Far Away Downs. Do you know what Far Away Downs is? No. I don't think so. Far Away Downs is the six-episode miniseries that is the re-editing, restructuring, repurposing of Baz Luhrmann's Australia. Oh, I've had heard about that. So oh. Baz Luhrmann has taken his film, which he has publicly said is the one creative project where he lost creative control mm -hmm. and decries the fact that the studio forced him to make a version of the film that was not what he wanted to do. Right. He's been working with indigenous voices and artists in Australia to recast that film. Yes. By recast, I mean recraft, no, no. not recast. No, mm -hmm. Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman are in it. Right. It's all of the footage that he filmed. He said he's filmed hours and hours of footage. He has a different ending. Um, there's apparently animated sequences throughout this, the film. Yeah. It focuses more specifically on the young indigenous boy, not on 
the Nicole Kidman and okay. the Hugh Jackman story, which, if you watch Australia, is how that movie starts. Yeah. Right. And I always thought that film, the first hour and a half of that three-hour freaking movie, the first hour and a half, the Drover sequence where they're driving the cattle... I've never seen it. Oh, is spectacular. The first right. hour and a half is just like... When I was in the cinema, I was like, this is, this is amazing. And it was the first Baz Luhrmann we'd had since... Um, Moulin Rouge right and then the movie kind of just has this weird tonal shift <laughs> they kind of return home and then there's this tacked on attack of Darwin in, in the final parts of the film right. and so to think that that three hour movie is going to be reshaped into six one hour oh, or, or much 45 much more palatable and yeah. yeah and that he's actually worked more consciously with indigenous artists I just saw today on Instagram they've they've, they've um, created new music for it and by right. music I mean what Baz Luhrmann does wonderfully, yep. which is work with actual artists and creates oh. incredible... I mean, his albums are some of the best albums of... Strictly Ballroom, Romeo and Juliet, Moulin Rouge. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, um, uh, uh, what's the one, the 20s one? Great Gatsby. Yes, yes. Like, his albums, and of course Elvis. I want to rewatch Great um, the, get the Get Down is yeah. brilliant. A Netflix um, pilot, you know, the series yep, falls yep. off the cliff, but the first episode is wonderful. So I just have this feeling that it's going to be great. The first reports of the first episode, because that's all that's been seen, yeah. is through the roof. Mm. But that's never been the problem with that text. It's the end of the... <laughs> it's how it's going to wrap up that I'm interested in. Mm. Um, and for me, it was never the content that was the issue. It was the pacing, the editing, the tone of Quite the Quite an extraordinary project to take existing content and, and more... Because, as you say, it's hours and hours and hours, so not everything that's just from the film. And then be able to recraft, what, arguably, what you really wanted out of it. Isn't that amazing? Without having to bring back Nicole and you and mm. re... You know? It, yeah. It, so I'm really excited. Very interesting. And if it's, if it's a flop, it's a flop, you know? Yeah. But I just... I don't know. Like, I think when Lerman has space to do what he does well, he, he can be wonderful. And his biggest issue with his most recent films is they're just too long yeah. and they're too languid, whereas a miniseries is perfect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, team, that is our wrap-up of 2023. Yay. Thank you for listening. <laughs> we'll be back again in January with our usual kind of structure. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, just thank you for all of our listeners of Cinema in Context. We've been doing this now for... Oh gosh, I mean, we started in 2016, didn't we? So we're mm. going to be coming up to our 100th episode next year. Wow. That feels significant. Yes, yeah? it is. Like, I wonder if we should do a bit of a clip show or something. <laughs> ah, what's our 100 about? best films. Wow. Ah, <laughs> Maybe our best. I'm joking, <laughs> William <laughs> Chen. <laughs> oh, I was just grabbing my notebook. No. <laughs> I've been thinking maybe our favourite movies of the of the current films we've done. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But hey, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll talk about it. We'll yeah, talk we'll talk about, about it. it. Um, but thank you again, listeners. We really appreciate it. So thank you for listening to another episode of Cinema in Context. If you enjoy our podcast, then please suggest it to your film-loving friends. Check out our Patreon. You can listen to Cinema in Context on SoundCloud, Spotify, Radio Public, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Apple Podcasts. Our Patreon is patreon.com forward slash cinema in context. You can follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook, which are great places to let us know what you think of this episode, as well as give us suggestions for future films to discuss and compare. Look out for our next episode in 2024. And until then, no hora mai!